HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane certified label really means. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you stories about how Gen Z is different from their millennial predecessors through the lens of food. My knowledge of alcohol didn't really come from like Bud Light commercials or like Project X. Yeah, and that's my gripe with the platform as well, is that all these DIY videos, cooking videos, they're 20 seconds. What's one food item from your childhood that you wish you could have today? Dunkaroos, because they don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Although, the Dunkaroos Twitter was activated again a year ago, so it's only a matter of time. They've tweeted a couple times. It's pretty hype. Listen to Meet in 3, HRN's food news and storytelling roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Krishnendu Ray, standing in for Coral Lee. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, whose forthcoming issue is devoted to COVID dispatches. In it, authors from around the world offer short, intimate portraits of early responses to the food crisis of this pandemic. My guest today is Shalini Sinha from Delhi, India. I have known Shalini for over 30 years now, although we lost contact for some time. Shalini is the India country representative of an organization called WIGO, which is an acronym for Women in Informal Employment, Globalizing and Organizing. In my view, it's an exemplary organization in three ways. It's a feminist organization, for the working class, advocating for street vendors, waste pickers, and domestic workers, among others. It's an exemplar of globalization from below, and it is also a research-based advocacy group for poor people who, in fact, make our cities run. Thank you for joining us, Shalini. Thank you for having me. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Shalini, could you tell our listeners where you are speaking from right now? I'm speaking from Delhi, the capital city of India. 
And which part of Delhi? Uh, the southern part of Delhi. I'm uh, speaking from uh, a middle-class uh, society, uh, residential society called Vasant Kunj in Delhi. Excellent. So you work for WeGo. Would yes, you I want do. to add something to my introductory description of WeGo? Uh, no, thank you very much for um, saying kind and nice things about WeGo. I do want to add a couple of things about our activities and the nature of our network. So uh, in terms of our activities, we pursue our program objectives through a mix of several activities, four in particular. First is helping build and strengthen networks of organizations of informal workers. Second is undertaking policy studies, uh, research, data analysis on the informal economy. And third is providing policy advice and convening policy dialogue on the informal economy. And fourth and final activity that we do is documenting and disseminating good practice in support of the informal workforce. In Perfect. terms of a network. Yep, no, go ahead. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, so, as you said, we are a global network, action research policy network, and we draw on three constituencies for our membership. The first is a member-based organization of informal workers. These could be cooperatives, trade unions, labor associations. The second is our researchers and statisticians who are doing research, data collection, or data analysis on informal economy. And third is practitioners from development agencies. So these could be government, non-government, intro-government, who provide services to or shape policy towards the informal workforce. Perfect. What makes someone informal? Like, what is informality? Informality is uh, when you are not formally employed, which means that you don't have any of the benefits of your work, which is social security or a working contract. Uh, so that is so which means that you are working informally, you may be casual worker, you may be part time worker, you may be self employed. And in all these situations, uh, you do not have any kind of protection or work contract to uh, cover you. So that's what informality in a very broad sense means. And uh, also in, at the city level, you must understand that informal uh, workers work at informal spaces. So they may not be working. Our perception of a worker is in a factory or in an office-like situation. But informal workers often work in informal spaces on the streets, by um, garbage dump, in their homes, in our homes. So informal places of work. Also so in some ways, would it some ways not a formally legally constituted workplace in some ways? Is that is that the difference? Yes, the traditional okay. understanding of a legal uh, workplace, which would be okay. a factory or a office mm. uh, or a shop, so how many how many informal workers are there in India? Oh, India, um, and the overwhelmingly large number of workers in India are informally employed. So over 90% are informally employed in wow. India. And uh, the percentage is far more 
uh, amongst women. So a large number of women workers are about 93% are employed in informal employment. So informal, would, is my understanding uh, correct then to say the informal employment means you don't have uh, unemployment insurance, you don't have health care insurance, you don't have, what else don't you have? You don't have paid leave, you don't have uh, any kind of pension, you don't have um, sick leave, you don't have, uh, as you said, no health insurance, and uh, you don't have a work contract, so you can be terminated overnight, you will not get a bonus. So all these things, uh, you know, come together uh, to define informality and to underscore its vulnerability. I see. So would street vendors, for instance, uh, uh, of cooked food and produce be considered informal workers? Absolutely. They are informal workers. They are self-employed informal workers, which means that they uh, are um, they don't have an employer as such uh, identified one employer. They are self-employed and are selling to uh, people who are buying and uh, they don't have any kind of social security nor job security. So definitely food vendors or any vendor, street vendor. Mm. Uh, in India uh, would be an uh, informal worker. How many, how many street vendors are there in India? Well, the estimates vary. You know, the, the statistical uh, estimates um, say uh, uh, about 7, 8 million. I would say about over 10 million in India. And um, in Delhi itself, uh, the uh, the latest labor force survey estimates about oh, 167,000 street vendors, all street vendors, not just food vendors I in see. Delhi. Mm. But mm. Uh, there is a problem in estimating street vendors. There are two things. One is that because they are informal, they are not. many of them are not registered. So recording the numbers is a challenge. And the second thing is if you're looking at street vendors in terms of the employment it generates, you have to understand that the uh, the linkages. So a street vendor may be selling a food which may be produced by somebody, half produced by somebody, or they may be selling an item which may be produced by another small manufacturer. So street vending itself provides employment to far more people than the street vendor themselves. So I see. it so is there are, a very big mm. livelihood option for urban poor. In I India. see. So, so to imagine for me to imagine, so if you have say ten million street vendors, you are saying in fact it provides employment to a lot more than ten million. Could be fifteen million. Yes. Could be twenty yes. million. Yes. Mm. Yes. Absolutely. Excellent. So. Uh, like focusing down a little more on uh, specifically on street vendors and maybe we'll get a chance later on in the program uh, to talk about some of the other folks, important folks that you work with, like waste pickers, uh, domestic workers, uh, uh, etc. So um, could you tell our uh, listeners uh, one of the most important challenges that the street vendors faced uh, when the lockdown was implemented in India, what, it was on March 24th or sometime yes, like that, right? Yes, okay. Yes, so what, yes. what, what was the immediate challenge? See, the lockdown in India was uh, implemented with a four-hour notice. Four and hours. Four mm. hours. 
and in its design and its implementation, it remained completely unmindful of the reality of the urban poor in India, which means that it did not take into factor that people go out to earn every day and from the daily earnings, they buy food and they eat. They have no savings or very little savings. And if they, even if they had savings, the, the kind of uh, accommodation that they have, dense, small accommodation in slums, there is no provision for storage of food. There's no refrigeration. So uh, people almost, when they came back from work that evening, were told that from tomorrow you could not venture out to work. So the savings ran out almost in 10 days, two weeks, and as did the food. And so there was a large scale um, hunger that we witnessed. And many of these uh, workers, also street vendors, particularly are migrants. They migrate from rural areas, come to the cities wanting to make a life, a better life from themselves, looking. They take up street vending because of ease of entry. They say, see themselves as entrepreneurs who can, given a facilitating condition, can make a better life for themselves. But um, uh, it, it, the lockdown just forced them completely to stop work. There was, uh, and the other factor uh, that that is very important is that the other urban poor also depend on street vendors for their livelihood, particularly nice food. Mm. So it's uh, they will buy. They you know many of the vendors sta uh, stand at what are called natural markets, which would be transport hubs which would be, you know, where a lot of people um, are gathering or close to the slums and they would always be around in the evening. So when people come from work, they pick up the vegetables and some cereal for that day, some dal and some rice, and that is what they go home and cook. Now, in a lockdown of this nature, which was so harsh and police was patrolling, there was curfew, nobody could come out of those slums. The shops were all closed. So the combination of having no money and no access to food, uh, it was one of the worst humanitarian crises that we have witnessed um, in India, I think. Where, where people trying to also return home? Um, yes, uh, because see, many of them, as I said, are migrants and they live in rented. Even those small apartments that they live in, small uh, rooms, one room, dingy room that they live in in slums are on rent and so you have no earnings you have barely any food but you have to pay a rent so the pressure of all of these things combined and the third uh, so you know many people started saying during the lockdown that uh, uh, the lockdown will kill us before the disease does we will die of hunger before we die of covid that was something that we heard over and over again. So because of all these factors, many started wanted to go back home, rural areas where they had come from. And um, in the absence of any transport, in the absence of any kind of any other uh, facility to travel back, uh, we saw hordes of them walking back for days with young children, pregnant wives, old mothers, and it is said that perhaps it was the largest movement of 
human population that our region witnessed after the partition. Um, wow, what what are we talking about? Like hundreds of millions of people. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, we, we, there was no way of keeping numbers, but uh-huh. you know there were hundreds and millions of people wanting to go back. Did the did the government try to do anything? And w- in in your sense, what are some of the measures that might have worked, and what are the measures that did not work at all? See, the government in the initial phase, what it did was that it did announce support, food support, uh, which was through the PDS, the public distribution systems, where it was uh, said that people who had ration cards could get free food. Um, and uh, uh, But, you know, many of these, as I said, are migrant workers. They don't have the required documentation which is relate, relates them to the city. I see. So, they, they could not access those benefits. Subsequently, when the lockdown started opening, I think in April it was, government also announced a loan facility for the vendors. Uh, but, you know, by the time the employment and the livelihood of vendors was completely destroyed, they had been home for a month. They had absolutely uh, nothing, uh, um, no work uh, available because you must understand that during the enforcement of the lockdown also it was very harsh on the urban poor particularly the vendors they were not allowed to vend and only those food vendors were allowed to vend which were sort of uh, in some way connected to a middle class um, society so if they were supplying uh, vegetables to a middle class society and they sort of needed it they were allowed but only a few and they were not declared as essential workers, essentially, unlike many other countries like South Africa, which did declare some of the food vendors as essential workers. So the harassment from the police was also very high. So uh, people completely, there was complete loss of livelihood. So when the government announced a loan facility, uh, we were very worried. And there were our reason for worrying was for two reasons. One is that in this absence of complete livelihood, what was needed immediately, initially, was a cash transfer support. Because you need some cash immediately to, because you've probably taken loan from family, from other members, or from some other sources at very, very high rates. So you need cash to be able to come back to the even keel and then start your livelihood process. And in the absence of a cash transfer, what happens is that the loan may be taken by the vendor, but it may not be used for livelihood purposes. It may be used for just for, you know, living uh, and for other consumption needs, which means that the debt of the (laughs) vendor actually becomes more. And the third is that this loan was tied to some kind of an identification as vendors. Now, vendors are not registered, although we have a very legal system, a law, uh, which is very forward-looking, but many vendors are not registered. So if you're not registered, you could not access So in the initial days. But off late, because of the vendors' movement, the government has accepted membership of vendor groups as um, uh, sort of... uh, um, uh, as as a registration document, a proxy for registration. 
I see. Let's, uh, uh, Shalini, we'll take a, a quick break and, and come back uh, uh, in a bit of time to talk a little more about the current challenges and the transition from the early moments uh, of the lockdown to what's going on now. See you soon. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host, presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane Certified Label really means. We're looking inside the farm certification process, beginning with the moment a farmer expresses interest in becoming American Humane Certified, all the way to a consumer seeing the seal on store shelves. And American Humane is our country's first national humane organization, founded way back in 1877. Now we certify nearly 1 billion farm animals each and every year. Despite that growth, uh, roughly 90% of U.S. farm animals are still raised without the benefit of independently verified science-based standards. Subscribe to Behind the Label with American Humane wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, we are back. Shalini, welcome back uh, uh, to Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, this is Krishnandu Ray standing in for Coral Lee. Uh, Shalini, before the break, we were talking about the challenges of vendors uh, uh, related to the lockdown. What is the situation right now? Has it improved? Is it any different? Is it worse? Uh, it, it depends on the vendors. For the food vendors, things are improving a little bit, um, uh, particularly for those who are vending vegetables and fruits. The cooked food vendors are still struggling, and uh, so why is, the, why is that? Been, why is the difference? What is the difference? Uh, why is that uh, difference? Difference. There? Is, there are several factors for it. A, the clientele for um, food, uh, uncooked food is a larger clientele and everybody needs we all buy whether it's middle class or poor people we all buy from street vendors our vegetables largely we buy from street vendors and secondly this covid and the hygiene factors have put this fear so people are not venturing out except for very necessary things and you know we have a huge culture uh, of uh, food vending of eating uh, on the streets, special kinds of food, cuisine, which is not just typical state-wide or region-wide, but almost city-wide. And that completely is going away because nobody wants to. Everybody is a little bit worried about going out and eating and hygiene and infection. That's one part from the consumer's point of view. From the vendor's point of view, they're also worried about catching the disease. They have no kind of health insurance. The place where they live um, has no, I mean, there's no way of any kind of social distancing. There's very little infrastructure, water. I mean, you talk about hand washing. If you don't have a direct tap into in your home, how many times can you do hand washing? So, uh, so because of these two factors, and the third, that the state-based violence against the vendors 
almost sort of continues um, because uh, many vendors are harassed, still not allowed to stand and vend, asked to go away, are, they are stigmatized, vendors are stigmatized a lot as you know, people who may be spreading the infection or the disease. I see. So, so, so in this, um, um, when you said that most uh, people in your neighborhood, for instance, or um, in Delhi uh, buy their uh, vegetables from street vendors, that might be a little uh, surprising for our audience. Would it be right to say that, in fact, most urban Indians probably buy their fruits and vegetables from street vendors? Yes, not as much as it was earlier. Earlier, it was far more. Now, I with see. the opening of malls and home deliveries, um, it has gone down. But still, uh, I would say before COVID, a, lo- a large number, about 70% of the middle class consumer was still buying from vendors. 70 to 80% were buying from vendors. Uh, and many of the middle class uh, societies would have vendors coming in their carts on a daily basis with all kinds of vegetables which would be bought fresh from the families and consumed. I see. So, like, uh, uh, what is the season right now to explain to our audience? Uh, and, uh, for instance, what did you have for dinner tonight? <laughs> so, it's monsoon season and we get a lot of corn in monsoon. So, I had an um, interesting uh, curry uh, with corn in it and fried okra and uh, um, uh, yellow dal with garlic and tomatoes and rice. So the corn and the okra and the garlic, where did you get it from? Well, today is Saturday and typically I would have gotten it from a neighborhood market, which is a weekly market. And it's a vibrant, beautiful market which comes up every Saturday once a week with uh, and everybody from our middle class society where we live uh, would go there to buy fresh vegetables, a large variety of vegetables and fruits that are available. Um, but the markets have not um, uh, been set up since the lockdown. So now wow. four months. And you know, this is not just one market in my neighborhood, there are almost 500 such markets in Delhi. And uh, the vendors who went there don't went anywhere else. They move from, uh, and they are, these are weekly markets. So in, in the southern Delhi, there would be vendors who would be vending in my market on Saturday, in Vasant Vihar on Sunday, in uh, Arkipuram on Monday. So these, so just imagine, so these large number of vendors have had no livelihood, still have no livelihood. And there was some talk of allowing weekly markets. And weekly markets are very typical of our culture. They, they, they are historical. We've had it in our villages. We've had it in our cities. They, uh, they are almost like the culture of our cities. And they provide both for the middle class consumer as well as for the poor consumer. And they have not taken place for four months. So for the, the market, uh, you usually shop, which is in Vasant Kunj, right? Uh, and, yes, uh, the weekly market. And it's called the sunny market, right? Uh, the shiny yes. market, right? Saturday yes. market, right? Saturday how many market. Pe- Saturday market. How many people, how many vendors are there typically, say, before COVID-19? And how many people would have been there in terms of, you think, um, uh, customers? Uh, 
I would say that they, there would be, if we see all vendors, then there would be about 100 vendors, a little over 100 vendors. But mm. they're not all food vendors. So there are uh, vendors who are selling uncooked food and vegetables. Then there are a group of vendors who are selling cooked food. And, you know, we have a very uh, wide variety of street food and very vibrant street food. So there would be a host of them selling those kind of street foods, which would be consumed both by middle class consumers, but also many poor who come to shop there. Then there are a host of shops which sell goods like uh, clothes and accessories and shoes and warm clothes for the poor consumers at cheap prices and uh, quality produce at cheap prices and also address some of the aspirational needs of the upcoming uh, youth. And uh, so there would be, you know, mobile phone accessories, some jewelries, uh, some kind of um, other accessories like bags and shoes for young women, but at which would be probably be replicate, uh, duplicates or copy from uh, well-known brands, but which also be very cheap. So, yes. Hmm. So, so, so about um, uh, 100, 150 vendors. And uh, I don't know, the market is thriving, filled with people from 5 to 10. Um, yeah, I visited that night. market with yes. you. I've visited the market with yes. you. And it's like, what, thousands of people probably, right? Yeah, absolutely, hmm. absolutely, yeah. So, uh, Shalini, uh, this has been fantastic to close this discussion for now. You know, would you say... Um, what would be one important thing that can help street vendors in India and, and specifically in Delhi? See, the, uh, we've already talked about the problems that the vendors have faced. But in many ways, uh, there is an underlying opportunity also. For once, the uh, plight of the workers, the plight of the vendors uh, is in the public domain. There is a lot being written about it, the kind of services. We have missed them. We have asked them to be brought back because uh, they were selling essential services because they have contributed to the nutritional aspects of many of our um, groups, middle-class houses. And we have seen their absence uh, has led to um, a, a situation of uh, hunger amongst the poor. Uh, one of the reasons could be that. So I think there is an underlying opportunity. And uh, what we could do is um, uh, also uh, along with this is also uh, the evictions have happened, continue to happen. They were very strong in Delhi before COVID. But in many places, as I said, vendors are still not being allowed. So the, for the vendors, the struggle is for the space in the city. And... Uh, uh, because we have been able to highlight the role that they play, um, there is an opportunity for us to turn, turn things uh, around, to retrofit how we uh, use our space, who has access to it, and uh, where the small and the big can coexist. So, I, uh, so the vendors, for the first, they need space and they need recognition of the service that they are providing. They, we also, as I said, we have a law which recognizes the role of the vendors and also provide for some kind of a participatory management of space 
So the implementation of that law. But thirdly, uh, the cost of COVID, uh, which is, you know, uh, setting up markets with social distancing, with hand washing mechanisms, with better infrastructure should not just be borne by the vendor. The consumer also has to be a party to it. And so we have to set up systems like that. <clears throat> and fourthly, and most important, I think, the vendors also need health protection from this epidemic. So they need information, awareness, and infrastructure to follow some of the hygiene practices which save us from this epidemic. Excellent. This is an excellent uh, uh, point to stop. Thank you, Shalini. So you're in some ways arguing for an opportunity to, in fact, redesign and reimagine the city, uh, which accounts for the lives uh, of the poor. Uh, thank you uh, uh, for being there today for us and explaining to us the challenges of street vendors in Delhi, India. Thank you for having me. So the COVID... Uh, so the COVID Dispatches series is produced in partnership with Gastronomica. Essays on COVID-19 can be found in issue 20.3 from August 19 onwards on the journal's University of California Press uh, website. Meant to be eaten listeners can enjoy 30% of single print copies of uh, this issue. Uh, thank you for listening to us. Meant to be eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.